Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Hot Topics in Specialty Pharmacy, where we chat with practitioners and leaders to discuss topics relevant to the specialty pharmacy workforce, business, practice, and our profession. My name is Chelsea Hoyle, and I'm a second-year Specialty Pharmacy Administration and Leadership Resident at Novant Health, and today I'm joined with our guest, Shuba Bott, a Clinical Pharmacist Specialist in Gastroenterology at Cleveland Clinic, Lisa Blanchette, the Senior Director of Specialty and Infusion Pharmacy Services at Novant Health, and Alec Mersch, the Assistant Director for Ambulatory Specialty Programs at University of Iowa Healthcare. In this episode, we will be discussing adalimumab biosimilars decoded, navigating clinical and operational realities. Welcome, everyone. Let's begin with a brief background and introduction of adalimumab biosimilars. Adalimumab is a medication that falls under a class of drugs known as biologics. It's primarily used to treat autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, psoriasis, and ankylosing spondylitis. Adalimumab works by targeting a protein called tumor necrosis factor alpha, which plays a key role in inflammation. Its ability to reduce inflammation and improve the quality of life for those suffering from chronic diseases has made it one of the top selling drugs in the world. The market prevalence of Humira is quite remarkable. Millions of patients around the world have benefited from its therapeutic effects. However, with this success also comes the emergence of biosimilars. A biosimilar is a biological product that is highly similar to an already approved biologic medication. As for adalimumab, the journey to their market arrival has been an interesting one. The first Humira biosimilar, Amgevita, was FDA approved in September of 2016 but it was not made available in the United States marketplace until January 31st of 2023. As of October of 2023, there are nine biosimilars on the market. Now that we've covered the basics of adalimumab and its therapeutic uses, it's time to delve deeper into our second topic, where Humira biosimilars seen today and why they are vital to health systems. Shuba, can you please tell us a little bit more about the different products and their interchangeability? Certainly. So as you mentioned, there are nine adalimumab biosimilar products that are currently FDA approved, but more potentially in the pipeline. Among the available adalimumab biosimilars, there are different product attributes that are worth noting, such as concentration, and this could either be low, which is 40 milligram over 0.8 ml, or it could be high, which is 40 milligram over 0.4 ml. There's also the inclusion of latex and or it's the trait buffer, and the trait buffer in particular has been associated with pain upon injection. There's also variation in the type of formulation, whether it comes in a pre-filled auto-injector or syringe, and even the stability at room temperature varies among these products, and it can be anywhere between 14 and 30 days. So additionally, there are two adalimumab biosimilar products that have interchangeability status, which is a United States-specific destination that permits the automatic substitution of a reference product with a biosimilar without requiring additional intervention from the prescribing provider. 
So in order to receive this destination from the FDA, manufacturers need to provide data with multiple switching to demonstrate that the alternative between the reference product and biosimilar product produces the same clinical result as patients who are being treated with the reference product alone. So it is also important to note that there are rules and regulations relating to interchangeability uh, because this is actually defined by individual state pharmacy laws. And despite uh, several autolimate biosimilar products being available and the intent of interchangeability destination, unfortunately, the overall adoption of these products, specifically within the United States, has been dismal. And this is really unfortunate because, as you mentioned, Adalimab is actually one of the priciest medications and has generated about $200 billion in global sales. Conversely, Adalimab biosimilars are being priced anywhere from a 5 to 80% discount in comparison to the reference product. So there's actually a lot of potential to generate significant cost savings, which could then ideally, which should then ideally be funneled back into the institution for the development of new treatments and or new services. So in addition to the cost-savings implications, having more affordable treatment options could actually pave the way for increased patient access to such medications. Unfortunately, there have been several barriers that have hindered the biosimilar adoption, and so the benefits of biosimilars are not really being well observed by providers, patients, or healthcare systems at this time. Thank you so much for that information, Shuba. Um, I know that you mentioned a lot about health system cost savings, so I'd love to hear a little bit more, Lisa, about what inventory management considerations your health systems used. Yeah, as Shiva pointed out, biosimilars innately are intended to reduce um, costs of pharmaceuticals across the marketplace and, and create marketplace competition. But with that competition and with the introduction of biosimilars, nine within the algorithm space, it does bring challenges. Um, and some of the operational ones, like managing inventory multiple algorithm products, is one that requires consideration by, by folks and specialty pharmacies that are dispensing these products. Um, you know, to date, as Shuba pointed out, we haven't seen uh, a great deal of adoption of the Adelimabab biosimilars, but certainly payer and plan coverages will drive how diverse of an inventory that pharmacies will need to stock. Um, and right now, the national PDMs are still covering originator product, but we're certainly seeing um, some of the plans additionally cover um, the biosimilars or uh, segments of the biosimilars. And we may certainly see shift over time where payers prefer biosimilars as we have in the injectable states. So with that in mind, issues such as look-alike and sound-alike considerations for adalimumab biosimilars are going to be really important um, and should be addressed within the operational space to ensure that we've got accurate stitching. Um, and I know many of our listeners know, but ISMP provides some great recommendations on how to handle the light sound-alike medications, including, including physical separation of product and use of tolerant and mixed lettering uh, to distinguish the nomenclature between these products. One other consideration that um, our specialty pharmacies need to pay particular attention to is managing um, inventory from a cost perspective. Adalimumab is a very expensive product, and so thinking through um, how you stock these products um, when it comes to carrying multiple biosimilars and managing the inventory with cost in mind 
uh, and making sure that you've got enough physical space to manage multiple or repetitive iterations of, of a product will be important. Um, and for the most part, our specialty pharmacies are able to maintain a just-in-time strategy, but for high movers like the Adalimumab products, we actually may need to think through uh, having some product on hand and in front of stock, multiple products. Oh, Lisa, so you bring up a, a lot of uh, good and important consideration. And I would like to add that from a clinic perspective, one pain point with adalimumab is that it generally requires prior authorization. And unfortunately, switching or initiating patients on a biosimilar will not change the process. And since prior authorization can potentially lead to treatment interruptions or delays, it will be important to know formally preferences to prevent this from occurring. And another important consideration is the prescribing component. There are already adalimumab biosimilar products available within the EHI system for electronic prescribing. And as kind of similar to what Lisa had mentioned, are they readily distinguishable for prescribers to, uh, to select the right product? Additionally, if interchangeability does occur on a pharmacy level, how will this update be manually made in the EHR to reflect the adalimumab biosimilar product that the patient is actually on? And I think, Alex, I believe you'll be covering more on the patient-related consideration, but one additional uh, clinic-related workflow consideration that I just wanted to point out is making sure that patients are enrolled in the correct copay assistance, uh, the nurse ambassador and the patient assistance program, depending on what biosimilar products that they end up being on. And then lastly, we know that practices should start to proactively provide education to patients about biosimilar uh, because they can actually go a long way in helping to prevent nocebo effects from occurring. Nocebo effect is generally uh, happens when patients have this negative perception of a treatment um, and they in turn will experience a disease or symptom worsening even though objectively the treatment is working as expected. And so um, from a workflow, from a clinic standpoint, all of these efforts are going to require the current staff to be trained, knowledgeable about the biosimilar product, and to be able to effectively navigate the processes as it relates to prescribing, education, prior authorization, and enrollment into these programs. Yeah, thank you for that, Shuba. Um, I would absolutely agree. And looking at what our patients may experience, again, really highlights the role that health system specialty pharmacy, especially the uh, heavily integrated models, will have in terms of helping patients navigate through a lot of these challenges. Um, so I'm going to really quick pivot a little bit to talking more at the uh, patient access, but also health system perspective of, of what these financials will look like. Um, so first, starting with our patients, we know that co-pays exceeding $10 can have a significant impact on adherence for patients. And, you know, understanding the different scenarios of what they may experience is important, um, you know, accessing just the copay card, but, you know, also from the perspective, do they even have the right one? Um, you know, when we look at this from a big picture perspective, the optimist in me, um, as well as what I've seen to date, leads me to believe that the availability of financial support for these medications will remain consistent. Many of these biosimilar products have come to the market with copay assistance like the originator product. And we're now seeing the potential for agents actually with a lower cash price alternative uh, for those that are unable to obtain through insurance. All things being equal, I am hopeful this will lead to a net increase in patient access for adalimumab, uh, whether it is the originator product or a biosimilar. Uh, what will be interesting to see develop in real time is how payers develop programs that incentivize biosimilar utilization or potentially disincentivize the originator product use through formulary preferences or even patient cost sharing. 
At the current moment, as stated earlier, most of the larger PBMs seem to be going to the route of parity. Um, I'm definitely not an expert on rebates and PBM negotiations with manufacturers, but at some point, uh, the economics of how patients pay for these medications will need to change if a significant change in utilization is desired. Another consideration that will need to be looked at is how susceptible each biosimilar is to appeal based on the concerns with interchangeability, presence of citrate, uh, or appropriateness based on indication or age. Um, many of these points uh, brought up before in terms of the differences with the products. Uh, my guess would be that there may be more than a few. Then the last question I have for patient access is if patient obligations will be less intensive uh, due to reduced cost sharing or lower cost for the biosimilar product. Uh, will this potentially lower patient obligation or reduce some of the prohibitive impacts of copay accumulators and maximizers? Uh, time will tell, but our specialty pharmacies will definitely be ready to assist the patients as they navigate this journey, as well as uh, the interdisciplinary team. So while a focus on the evolution of patient access is important, it's still relatively early. And so um, health system specialty pharmacies will also need to understand how that aggregate in the shift of utilization uh, may impact their budget and, and what may come in the future. So in contrast to what if you were to ask me a year ago, it appears the impact of Humira biosimilar utilization over the next few years will be unique to each organization, a mix of patients served and payer landscape, as opposed to just one switch of everybody uh, moving over in a relatively quick process. But ultimately, some organizations may experience little change in utilization, a gradual linear increase, or more of a stepwise approach with large shifts in payer coverage. Ultimately, I think it's fair to say that we will see some increase in utilization of the biosimilar compared to today. Let's dive further though into how this may evolve with a few key considerations. Uh, so number one, we need to understand what Humira utilization looks like today and what it may look like tomorrow and beyond. The first glimpse of this can be gleaned based on payer requirements. Health systems should take note of what payers are present in the market, what is the specialty pharmacy's fill rate, how many of their patients are on Humira, and then ultimately, what are their requirements for bio biosimilar utilization from the payer? Given that financials will be based on current utilization and future capture, we need to evaluate, evaluate what is the impact of current fills for Humira, as well as those that may be obtained as Humira or biosimilar in the future. The past summer, it became increasingly evident, at least in the short term, that many payers were providing the biosimilars at a parity to Humira. As a result, there was little incentive for the status quo to be challenged. In contrast, there has been some moves by other payers to require the biosimilar. My best guess is that many health systems will continue to see a linear increase in biosimilar transitions based on individual payers with the occasional stepwise increase with substantial coverage changes from payers. I would not find it unbelievable that greater than 25% of patients over the next two years may transition to a biosimilar out of a payer mandate or a more aggressive cost-sharing incentive or disincentive structure. That being said, this number could be tempered if payers push for a more gradual adoption, such as only requiring new starts instead of forcing transitions from their originator product. With a number of biosimilars coming to the market, we also have other considerations. Number two, what will that mix of biosimilars look like? This will be a bit easier to project, at least in the short term, for each calendar year and will be largely driven by payer requirements. For those looking for a more critical approach, one could adjust uptake based on the individual characteristics of each biosimilar, including their FDA-approved indications, dosage forms, risk for appeal, or interchangeability. This brings us to the third consideration. What is the potential net income compression on a per-prescription basis that can then be extrapolated to the shift in proportion of patients? 
Organizations should start with reviewing their acquisition costs and reimbursement at a per agent and per payer level. For those with minimal uptake or data for the biosimilar, it may make more sense to apply a more generic reimbursement methodology based on claims data or contracts for Humira switching to a biosimilar than trying to drill down to the impact of each individual biosimilar. That being said, in a brief spoiler alert, at a per prescription basis, I would expect a significant deviation from current state. If you don't want to take my word for it, organizations can also review previous claims and decreases in reimbursement or seeing net income compression for other biosimilar products over the past few years to provide more insight into the total potential magnitude of the change. While not the best news from a financial perspective, we may actually see some interesting deviations when considering no consideration number four. Will additional agents outside of Humira continue to see a more significant uptake in utilization, which may minimize the impact of this change? With the continued comfort and evolution on formularies of other in-class medications and the transition of a few therapies transitioning from intravenous administration to subcutaneous recently for similar indications, we may see some patients choose treatment modalities that were not previously available. Furthermore, will the lag time with utilizing biosimilars be offset by new FDA indications or negotiations and cost-sensitive decisions between PBMs and manufacturers. Time will tell, but it is definitely a time where organizations should plan to expect some deviation from the previous normal and look at finding opportunities to build that within their budget. Wow, thank you so much, Alex, for all of that, all those considerations. And I really appreciate that insightful information for our listeners. I'd like to pivot our conversation a little bit to discuss the future direction of biosimilars. Let's talk a little bit more about how biosimilars are um, a disruption in the current specialty pharmacy space, what's on the horizon, and what should be considered for health systems. Lisa, would you be able to speak to the CVS biosimilar production and disruptions? Yeah, this was a really interesting wrinkle in, for, um, in the, in the aluminumab uh, biosimilar landscape. And for those who haven't heard about it yet, in August of this year, CBS announced the launch of a new, new subsidiary, wholly owned subsidiary, um, called Core Davis. And Core Davis is a new company that will be working with manufacturers to commercialize and co-produce specifically biosimilars for the U.S. marketplace. Um, and related to Alalumab products, CVS announced that it has contracted with Sandoz to commercialize Sandoz's Irimaz product under a private Core Davis label starting quarter one of 2024. And to me, this move by CVS and Core Davis takes vertical integration to a whole new level, from product pricing and launch, all the way through payer coverage and then pharmacy dispensing all within a single uh, company or corporation. Uh, Core Davis has shared that it's aiming to launch Pyramaz at 80% below Humira list prices. So it's one of those low back um, positions in the, in the biosimilar listing. And it's a strategy that makes sense. It aligns with the vertical integration model to reduce cost of care for its covered lives. Um, and also perhaps may appeal to other payers with presenting a low-cost option for their covered lives as well. So it'll be really interesting to see if other vertical giants get into the manufacturing and product launch space, as CVS has done, um, in response to, to this recent move by CVS. Thank you for that, Lisa. Um, obviously, a lot to consider and a lot to unpack uh, 
with everything that's going on and just shows the importance of looking at this from the lens of, of different stakeholders. Um, so we're going to pivot a little bit on my side and, and look at outside of gathering information, you know, budgeting proactively and patiently awaiting updates in some cases. You know, what can we do as a pharmacy team, as pharmacy team members to prepare further? Uh, my advice would be to engage key state, key external stakeholders so you can move forward with the biosimilar transition journey together and have a key new partner as new biosimilars, even outside of the ones we're talking about today, uh, move forward with approval. Again, spoiler alert that many of you know, more are coming and having clear lines of communication with providers, payers, and manufacturers is critical. So when we think about uh, partnering, at the provider level, partnering to understand how prescribing or appeal patterns may change is kind of step one. Uh, while payers will drive a significant proportion of what medication is preferred, uh, the complexity, rigidity, or variability of payer requirements could actually cause a shift away from the biosimilars to other medications entirely. Furthermore, pending prescriber preferences and shared decision-making with patients, the decision to appeal may come up quite frequently for patients already established on Humira. Collaborating with providers and your specialists that are integrated in the clinic will be critical to better understanding how these trends may evolve. At the manufacturer level, partnering to understand what priorities they are pushing for is critical. Manufacturers may be able to provide insight into market trends they are seeing in their re in your region, upcoming changes in formulary status uh, with key uh, payers, as well as other relevant information, including drivers or barriers to biosimilar adoption. Lastly, and as stated previously, one of the biggest drivers of utilization, payers. Having contact at your top five payers at a minimum or beyond can inform you on upcoming formulary shifts. Uh, which is crucial for building clinical systems to help manage onboarding of the new agent and potential patient transitions. Uh, ultimately, there's a lot to be gained by setting up these relationships and, and coordinating with one another uh, to ensure that the impact on patients is minimized. Wow, so a lot to unpack in the space for sure, um, between what Lisa and Alex had mentioned. And it just seems like the biosimilar landscape just keeps getting more and more complex. Um, I think I have some good news, though, to share that could potentially help with the biosimilar adoption and uptake. Uh, so in September of this year, the, the FDA actually issued a draft guidance recommending that the removal of interchangeability information from biosimilar labeling, um, stating that it, it uh, will only contribute to more confusion. And they proposed that this interchangeability information should only be included in the purple book, which is more appropriate as a pharmaceutical reference. Um, there's also ongoing discussion about potentially eliminating interchangeability study requirements, as again, this is a destination that is specific to the United States, whereas in Europe, uh, biosimilars are actually considered interchangeable once biosimilarity has been demonstrated. Um, if it's a lot easier for interchangeability destination to be obtained, this would then potentially decrease the need for additional research and development costs for companies. Uh, which in turn could then prevent biosimilars from being priced even higher. And then therefore, this could actually increase the lower cost options that are available for patients. So I think in, in summary, there's still a lot to continue watching out um, specifically in the biosimilar space as all of this unfolds. Yes, there definitely sounds like there's a lot of information to consider as we move forward in the biosimilar space. I'd love to transition into discussing our final topic, which is the role of pharmacy and the role of the pharmacist in the biosimilar space. Shuba, what are your thoughts on the role of the pharmacist in the biosimilar space? 
Yeah, great question and, and something that I, I am very passionate about. So I would like to say that I think we can all agree that just based on the type and amount of content that we covered here today, um, there's several take-home points. So first, biosimilars can result in many benefits, including product competition, lower prices, and increased treatment access. Second, the adoption and implementation process, um, at least specifically for adult little map biosimilars, is unfortunately not a straightforward process, um, and there's actually numerous factors that need to be taken into consideration. Lastly, we're still kind of awaiting the seedable impact of adult little map biosimilars, and maybe potentially this might come in the next few years, maybe in 2024 or 2025, once more of the formularies become updated and implemented. So that being said, pharmacists have a significant role in the biosimilar space. Um, looking at adalidomab biosimilar specifically, we have discussed several considerations relating to product variations, uh, operations, inventory, workflows, formulary preferences and effects, and also the patient experience. So it will be important for pharmacists to stay up to date on this landscape and serve as a resource to both providers and patients. Interchangeability is a, another concept that we talked about today, and this is a process that happens at the pharmacy level. Uh, the pharmacists and their teams will need to be familiar with the individual state laws as it relates to the process. Um, it is also beneficial that pharmacists are embedded in several settings, whether it's in the clinic, specialty pharmacy, or part of the PNT process. So it's really natural for pharmacists to step into a biosimilar champion role and assist or oversee the operational um, as well as workflow tasks while clinically supporting patients um, who either initiate or switch to a biosimilar. I would also recommend our listeners to check out the ASHP Biosimilar Resource Center, which is the title uh, Biosimilar Adoption, Breaking Through Barriers, and this is available at www.adoptbiosimilars.org. Um, it's an excellent resource. It contains articles, checklists, webinars, and podcasts. And I think it could serve as a helpful resource for those, uh, for those involved in the biosimilar um, in some capacity. So Chelsea, to conclude, biomethods have so much to offer when it comes to biosimilars. And I think that we can all agree that we're excited to see what the future holds for the space. Thank you, Shuba. It sounds like there's a lot of room for pharmacists to champion biosimilar adoptions. That's all we have time for today. I wanted to thank our speakers for joining us to discuss adalimumab biosimilars decoded, navigating clinical and operational realities. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources for specialty pharmacy practitioners at ashp.org. You can find member-exclusive offerings, such as the Specialty Pharmacy Resource Center, which includes examples of best practices, business development resources, and more. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Specialty Pharmacy. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP.